Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, December 3rd. In today's news, President Trump is livid with Bill Barr and just might fire him. President-elect Biden's immigration policies could leave him in a quandary amid a looming surge of migrants. And a third grade teacher in Minnesota donates a kidney to her school's custodian. But first, the big idea. Our country hit a pair of alarming coronavirus benchmarks on Wednesday, surpassing 200,000 new infections and topping 100,000 patients hospitalized for the first time. Yesterday alone, 2,798 of our fellow Americans died from the coronavirus. 2,798. On September 11, 2001, 2,606 people died in the World Trade Center when the Twin Towers went down. CDC Director Bob Redfield said last night that the next three months could be, quote, the most difficult time in the public health history of the nation. He said the coronavirus death toll in America could reach 450,000 by February. But President Trump didn't talk about the coronavirus yesterday. Instead, he escalated his baseless efforts to subvert democracy with a 46-minute video rant. Standing behind the presidential lectern in the diplomatic reception room and flanked by the flags of his office and of the country whose constitution he swore an oath to uphold, Trump tried to leverage the power of the presidency to overturn the results of an election he lost. Our White House bureau chief, Phil Rucker, writes that the rambling and bellicose monologue, which Trump said, quote, maybe the most important speech I've ever made, was delivered direct to camera with no audience. It underscored his desperation to reverse his loss after a month of failed legal challenges and his key states have already certified Joe Biden's victory. Trump claimed without evidence that corrupt forces stuffed ballot boxes with fraudulent votes. He claimed the fraud was, quote, on a scale never seen before. He called on the Supreme Court to, quote, do what's right for our country, which he said would entail terminating hundreds of thousands of votes so that he can, quote, easily win. Meanwhile, as the president had his eye off the ball, our economy continues to tank. Every indicator is looking scary, really scary. We're going to get some official jobs numbers on Friday, but the preliminary data that we got yesterday from ADP is downright chilling. On Capitol Hill, Democratic congressional leaders yesterday embraced a $908 billion coronavirus relief framework. This is a massive concession. It's meant to prod Trump and Senate Republicans into accepting a compromise. The announcement by Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer is the first time in nine months that leaders from one party agreed to back a proposal that has substantial support from members of the other party. And the willingness to accept a potential bill totaling less than a trillion dollars is a significant step down for the top Democrats who until yesterday were demanding that at least $3 trillion be spent on new aid. Mike DeBonis, Jeff Stein, and Sungmin Kim report that aides to senators who are hammering out the bipartisan $908 billion framework have been in contact with Joe Biden and his staff, although the president-elect is being careful not to weigh in too heavily publicly considering that Trump is ultimately the one who will sign any relief package this year, and Biden doesn't want to derail the deal. Alas, amid the cascading crises, 
Many of our leaders still are not taking this contagion as seriously as we need in order to flatten the curve and slow the spread of the pandemic. Mike Pompeo has invited more than 900 people to indoor holiday parties at Foggy Bottom that experts warn could become super spreader events. John Hudson reports that State Department leadership sent out a notice to all employees last week instructing them that, quote, any non-mission critical events should be changed to virtual events as opposed to in-person gatherings. The same day, a group of event planners were told that the guidance did not apply to the upcoming functions that they were working on. Massive indoor parties hosted by the Secretary of State and his wife Susan on the eighth floor of the State Department, involving hundreds of guests, food, and open bars. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Thursday. Number one, a senior administration official indicated that there is a good chance that Attorney General Bill Barr could get fired, not just for his public comments undercutting Trump's unfounded claims of fraud, but also for steps he did not take on a probe of the FBI's 2016 investigation into Trump's campaign. Matt Zapatosky, Josh Dossi, and Devlin Barrett report that several people at the highest levels of the White House are trying hard to persuade Trump not to axe his AG, explaining that he has carried quite a lot of water for the president and frequently covered for him. But Trump remains angry that Connecticut U.S. Attorney John Durham, his own appointee, did not issue a public report about his findings before the election. And it doesn't satisfy him that Barr secretly appointed Durham as a special counsel in October, a perch from which he could cause constant headaches for the incoming administration. Meanwhile, Barr has scheduled a wave of executions for Trump's final days in office. The Justice Department's rush to carry out executions during the final days of the term, including scheduling three executions during the week before Biden takes office, is drawing sharp condemnation from critics of capital punishment. Sean Nolan, a lawyer for two of the federal death row inmates facing execution in Trump's final days, says it's especially galling for him because Biden ran on a platform of not moving forward with federal executions. In case you missed it, on Friday night this past week, Barr's team published a rule in a post-Thanksgiving news dump that will allow federal inmates to be executed by electrocution, gas, or, in certain circumstances, firing squads. That rule is set to take effect on Christmas Eve. Number two, when Biden is inaugurated, he is likely to take on the nation's immigration policies almost immediately. It could be a difficult task. The new president will have to navigate between the expectations of supporters who want a total repudiation of Trump's nativist policies and the complex realities of a dysfunctional, broken immigration system. Biden has pledged to stop work on Trump's border wall, to change the nation's approach to immigration enforcement, and to again welcome with open arms refugees seeking protection from oppression. But experts warn that some shifts could take time amid bureaucratic overhauls and staffing concerns. The economies of Central American nations have been hammered by the pandemic even harder than ours has been, and several powerful hurricanes this year have displaced quite a lot of people. The government expects many more migrant caravans to start arriving at our southern border in the coming months. That will provide an early test of the Biden administration's approach to an issue that has been central to Trump's presidency. Our immigration beat reporters, Nick Miroff, Maria Sacchetti, Abigail 
House loaner and Aurelis Hernandez, report that Biden will be able to eliminate some of Trump's hardline policies with the stroke of a pen. But others are regulations that would take months to unwind, and a more lasting solution, immigration legislation actually passed by Congress, almost certainly will not materialize. That's going to force Biden to rely heavily on executive power. Unraveling the programs, regulations, and rules designed to shut out asylum seekers will be a major challenge for the new president. It probably will require recalibrating a federal apparatus that has been used over the past four years to stop the majority of immigrants from entering the country at all. In fact, Trump's asylum policy has left more than 25,000 people marooned just across the border in Mexico. Rescinding the policy would probably mean allowing 25,000 people into the U.S. for their asylum hearings. It's important not to forget that Barack Obama's administration deported about 3 million people, prosecuted thousands who came into the nation illegally, and expanded family detention after a major influx of Central Americans at the border back in 2014. Biden has said he will govern differently from his former boss, and he has acknowledged that deporting people who committed no crimes other than crossing the border was a big mistake. Number three. Patrick Mertens needed a kidney, and feeling desperate, his daughter, Kayla, posted a request on Facebook a few months back. Patrick, a 64-year-old school custodian, hadn't asked his co-workers at the elementary school in Kimball, Minnesota. He thought they'd already done enough by setting up a fundraiser to support his dialysis. But when Aaron Durga, a third-grade teacher at the school and a mother of three, saw Kayla's Facebook post, she knew she wanted to help. So she reached out and after some tests learned that she was a match. It was decided. When Erin was a kid, her father was the school band director for 30 years. As a piece of fatherly advice, he told her the first people that she should befriend in any school are the building workers, the support personnel. She took that advice to heart. Patrick realized how serious his health situation was two years ago when he woke up in the middle of the night in agonizing pain. After a visit to the emergency room, he learned that his kidneys were failing. His doctor told him that he needed a new kidney to live and that finding a match could take three to ten years. The doctor told him he might not make it. Kyle Melnick reports that more than 93,000 Americans are currently waiting for a kidney transplant. Because Patrick has type O blood, it was the hardest to match. But like an angel, Aaron delivered a miracle. And now Patrick has already returned to his favorite activities. He's deer hunting, he's building birdhouses, and he's driving his red ram truck. He's more thankful to spend more time with his own three children, seven grandkids, and his yellow Labrador. Patrick sent Aaron flowers at Thanksgiving, and he still calls to thank her. But he acknowledges that he is at a loss to truly express his gratitude. Aaron's selflessness is a reminder that there is nothing wrong with America that cannot be fixed by what's right with America. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, December 3rd. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.